Game Cool Books, Episode 72, No Elsewhere. Welcome back. This time we're in Chapter 26, The Abyss, and Chapter 27, The Platform. The Abyss opens with poetry from William Blake again. Actually, a couple of lines that appear in the section of America, a prophecy that Pullman has already put at the front of the book as a whole. These lines run, the sun has left his blackness and has found a fresher morning, and the fair moon rejoices in the clear and cloudless night. And they're lovely lines. Uh, I don't know if it warrants uh, repurposing them once again here, um, but the image of the sun and his blackness seems really important, um, not only because the black sun is taken as an image of melancholy, uh, but because uh, the intention of uh, Father MacPhail was so dark uh, to destroy Lyra um, using uh, a technology in part developed by her mother. He was intending to sacrifice Lyra's mother, but ended up sacrificing himself instead. Um, this is uh, such a, a dark moment in the story, um, and it has such terrible repercussions here, but it does not actually uh, land. Lyra escapes from this attempt on her life, um, and they indeed find a fresher morning, a clear and cloudless night. Uh, as they escape from the land of the dead after so many chapters uh, uh, traversing it. And with them, of course, come all the ghosts uh, who choose to follow. Fittingly enough, the chapter opens with imagery that is dark and weighty. The uh, Chevalier's dragonfly has died, and the only light that remains is the tale of the ladies. They're out of food, and so the lady is feeding her dragonfly on her own blood. It's a small but significant uh, image of, of sacrifice um, to juxtapose against that terrible atrocity committed by Father MacPhail in the previous chapter. But also kind of interesting here is Lyra not noticing the fact um, She's so concentrating on making it forward that she doesn't see what the lady or apparently anyone else is really up to here. Um, and that too is significant in that she's naive or innocent, ignorant anyway, of this terrible purpose launched against her. Um, they're following the harpy no name to where the nearest point with the outside world might be uh, that the endless column of ghosts with their whispers is trailing behind the two living children. Uh, and then we have a familiar voice and the whisper of Lee Scoresby. Uh, he comes not simply to reconnect with Lyra, but to bring news that the church is working some trouble that's aimed at her 
and says, don't ask how, but he needs the boy with the knife. And as uh, Will turns and looks past this ghost he does not know, he sees one that he does. Um, and Lyra sees too, a, a grown-up version uh, of Will, a vision of Will, um, particularly the jaw uh, <laughs> and the way they um, hold their head, we're told. And this uh, comes back, of course, to Lyra's hair. Um, there's a important absence of explanation here. It's almost like a fairy tale. Simply uh, uh, John Perry telling Will to quickly cut all the hair from Lyra's head where a lock of hair has already been cut to open a way into another world and close it again quickly with the hair safely on the other side. So Will has to cut out a bit of rock, of course, for this and replace it covering the hair. That is done just before that moment when the wires touch and the blade comes down in the previous chapter. There's a growling, grinding noise like the earth turning on itself like a, a mill wheel. Um, again, very medieval, melancholy sort of image there. And the effect is instantaneous. It reverberates through and across the worlds. Um, the explosion happens in another world. It does not destroy them, but it is sufficient to change things in multiple worlds, much like Lord Asriel's opening of his window. Also, of course, depending on that sacrifice, which he thought was going to have to be Lyra, but then saw it could be Roger instead. And this time, it causes a, an earthquake, uh, a lurch on the rocks that they're standing on, causing them to slide and other rocks to fall and bruise them, bruising their legs and feet, uh, reminiscent of the line in Genesis about the serpent um, bruising the feet of uh, Adam and Eve's children. And of course, they're sloping down to the left, the, the sinister direction here. Um, they would have fallen, uh, it sounds like, if the explosion had gone on even a moment longer. And indeed, the ghost of Roger nearly does fall, but the ghost of John Perry saves him. When they can see again, and the dust, normal dust, of course, is cleared, and the smell of cordite, that rock-smashing smell that Lee Scoresby smelled before he died, they can see a light, like a luminous, misty rain that falls or flows like a waterfall down, down a shaft into the deepest darkness. We aren't told, but of course, we can conjecture that this light is, in fact, composed of dust. Now they have to climb back up the slope to the right, into the dusty gloom. They have to make their way forward because there's no other way out. They're trusting the harpy on this. The ghosts, as they go by, gaze in horror, but the harpies are unafraid 
of this abyss open beside them. Fortunately, again, the knife and alethiometer are both safe. Now time passes. The narration says it's a period that they cannot even guess at, but they'll never forget the fear and danger, the sense that their eyes are pulled and a ghastly dizziness accompanies their looking tempted into that abyss. It's associated not with the word melancholy, but with something close, nausea, and with cold hands and vicious whispers of ghosts who are now doubting their trust in the children. One significant line here, who gave them the authority? Of course, no one really gave it in the telling. Uh, they seized it for themselves. Um, Will uh, has to hold himself back from turning on these uh, these ghosts. And Samakya encourages them until they can feel a, a little wind ahead. Um, it seems that this huge hole beside them is of the same kind as the holes when a window is cut between worlds. Will can feel that. He can sense that the edge is like the edge cut by the subtle knife. But his impression is that this does not lead to another world like the others. Much like the world of the dead obeys different rules. And uh, as the world of the dead is to normal worlds, so this abyss, it seems, is to even the world of the dead where they are. It's in eternal fall into darkness. He wants to be able to close it up. And Lyra points out they haven't been able to close every window that they've opened. He senses that something bad will happen if this one is left there. And indeed, something bad will happen. Um, but as with the creation of the abyss itself, there is a a perhaps a silver lining to the fall that we'll see take place into the abyss. Um, meanwhile, the ghosts talking to Tialis have an idea about how they can help Lord Asriel. Tialis is skeptical, but uh, it seems that the, uh, the specters um, and the lack of demons for them to feed on has given the ghost the idea that they might be able to fight back against those spectral beings. Uh, and Lyra suspects, or rather um, imagines what it would be like for a ghost to fall into that yawning abyss, to be forever conscious and forever falling, she thinks would be worse than the world of the dead that they're leaving here. She feels probably responsible for this imagined fall. As her imagination runs away with her, that thought of falling gives way to a vertigo, a sense also of vanity, which is interesting. Just as she used a bright living memory fighting with the uh, clay burners children the brick burners children in the clay beds now it's a stray memory of 
playing on the roof with Roger and uh, showing off one time and causing him uh, great consternation. And as that memory comes back to her, she feels that she is Roger's Lyra and should not be creeping like an insect. But as she straightens up, loses her balance, she begins to slowly slide down again. It begins with a feeling of annoyance. It becomes something silly that she cannot stop. And then suddenly she sees the horror of her state. And through the mist, through a vortex of roaring fear, she is pitched towards the edge. Will feels he has to watch. And he's shouting her name. She can't hear, of course. But then no name, the harpy, who also shouted Lyra's name mockingly and cut her uh, forehead, comes down and the claws this time close tight around her wrist and slowly and heavily, we're told repeatedly, uh, that phrase, slowly and heavily, by holding tight, is able to rescue Lyra from her fall. Um, Will and Lyra hold them uh, themselves tightly together, the only two human beings in the vast gulf of death. Now, the, the abyss, of course, has been with them all this time. They just have not seen it, but now they become aware of it. Um, it's the same, in a way, as all those unclosed windows, all those mistakes and uh, dangers that they passed by without realizing uh, how close they were to being lost. It's just much more obvious now. And Lyra and the other ghosts bless the harpy, calling her a savior, generous. Um, there's a distinct feeling of the, the full sense of salvation here. Um, because that fall would have been an eternal one. Lyra's ghost would have gone on falling, even after her body died. And in turn, what they're attempting is to save the ghosts from an eternity in the world of the dead. Um, we're told that her vanity has been shaken out of her at this moment. So. It's kind of a recapitulation of what happens when she tries to tell lies to the harpies and learns that she has to tell true stories. Here, her pride in the bad sense of putting on a persona um, to lord over others uh, manifests really one last time. And then her utter dependence on others, in this case, the harpy noning, is brought home to her unmistakably. And it seems that idea is going to stick. They hold hands, Will and Lyra, on the rest of their journey. They're almost to the way out, but not quite there yet. We get a series of single word sentences, this kind of uh, slow and heavy feeling is gradually um, working its way through the narrative and style of the writing here too the deep exhaustion of our characters after this long journey is brought home to the reader in this way. 
And just as they're about to part one last time from the ghosts of Scoresby and Perry, they share their idea, that is the ghost's idea, to stay, stay behind for a moment, and then go to Azriel's world instead. Um, somehow, just as the shaman knew about the bomb, he also knows that their demons are in that world where Lord Azriel's rebellion uh, is fighting its last battle. In order to find their demons, which they'll need to do, they'll have to go there anyway. And so ghosts like the shaman uh, who know how to fight should accompany them. And John Perry explains a little bit more, since apparently the timing is not so crucial right now, that, for example, Sir Charles, or Lord Boreal, that is, couldn't live permanently in Will's world. He had to go back to his own world from time to time. The guild in the world of the subtle knife had to return to their home world, although they cut and stole from many other worlds. In fact, all those openings onto their world ended up weakening it uh, critically. And although he himself in life was fit and healthy, it only took 10 years for him to become mortally sick. As he explains, the demon, the part of themselves represented by the demon, can only live in its own world, the world they were born in. They might travel, but they can only truly live in their own. For this reason, he says, Lord Azriel's great enterprise must fail. We can only build the Republic of Heaven where we are. There is no elsewhere. This comes very close to being Philip Pullman's own point of view, I think, because he's used that phrase, there ain't no elsewhere, he said in at least a few interviews over the years. The children deserve a brief rest, but then they will have to journey back into the dark for one last journey. At last, Will is able to cut a way out into a world with night air, a canopy of stars, water in the distance, and trees high as castles. It's the sweetest thing that they've ever seen. It's something uh, recognizable for the reader. And then he enlarges the window. I think this is the first we've seen him do this, um, allowing ghosts to pass through uh, many at a time but the first of all the ghosts to make his way out into the world again is the ghost of Roger. And in a uh, lovely simile, he turns into the night, the starlight, the air, with a vivid burst of happiness like the bubbles in champagne. He becomes a part of the dew-laden grass and the soil, air, and stars. And that idea of blessing comes back again. The harpies who knew the way to this place, uh, particularly no name, is blessed for having saved Lyra. Lyra, in turn, has saved all of the ghosts with Will's help, um, starting with her dear friend who had spoken to her in her dreams uh, out of the abundance of his hope uh, to make his escape 
from the world of the dead. This brings us into chapter 27, the platform. From the depths to the heights of those trees like castles. And we go along with the poet Andrew Marvell this time, a passage from his poem, The Garden. My soul into the boughs does glide, there like a bird it sits and sings, then wets and combs its silver wings. And that poem, of course, deals with the same sorts of themes that contemporary poet John Milton and, of course, Blake, a little bit later, are dealing with that innocence and experience question. The image of the soul as a bird is very demon-like, and it's not exactly what we'll see happen in the chapter, but it's quite close. Um, this, of course, picks up with Mary Malone in the world of the Mulefa. Her friends have built her a platform from which she can observe what's going on with the dust and the trees uh, safely. Um, she can spend the night up there now. She is as happy as she has ever been in a physical sense when she's up on this uh, creation of theirs. She's observing colors, feeling the breeze, smelling the scent of the air, and hearing uh, the song of birds and the waves in the distance. This all lulls her senses, bathes her in bliss. And as she's thinking and watching that relentless drift of the particles of dust, she begins to piece together what's going on in the different worlds. We've heard this number already, but it's been 300 years since the trees have begun to struggle. And at that time, in our world, the Royal Society was being set up, the first true scientific experiments uh, represented here by Newton and his optics and discoveries about gravitation. Um, that Newton uh, is a historical figure, but also a poetic figure for William Blake, against whom he pours much of his scorn uh, in his poetry. Then we've got uh, in the world of the subtle knife, that uh, device, of course, being invented, and in Lyra's world, the alethiometer being invented. Um, this transition from a world of symbols to a world of reason, uh, to put it very bluntly. And the knife, of course, in a way represents that cutting analytic power of reason, while the alethiometer represents the synthetic or uh, piecing together power of imagination. Then as she's thinking about this, the tree is swaying and she is aware that the sparkles in the wind are all but conscious. She's wondering about a cause and effect relationship among these events and the problems that the Mulefa has observed in their world. Um, and as she's trying to piece these together, she passes into a kind of trance state, a little bit like what Lyra experiences at mm, just slightly after this moment. But um, in Mary's case, 
she feels her mind drift away and observes herself from outside her body, from, say, the perspective of her own demon, if such a thing were possible. She feels the panic, and in this moment, the movement of the dust particles begins to race like a river. Again, she can't tell the cause, though. She wonders if it's a relativity issue of time moving differently in this state for her, or if something else is at work. Feeling the danger of being carried away in that flood of dust, she wants to seize onto something but has no arm. Her body is sleeping hoggishly, a lovely, rare description there. And she um, struggles against this flow like water over a weir so that millstone now returns as the thing that powers it, the weir. Uh, and as she's about to be carried away, she throws out a mental lifeline. And that thing that holds her back is the feeling of being alive. So just what Lyra used in telling true stories. Now, she thinks of the touch of her friend Atal, the taste and smell of bacon and eggs, the fatigue of her muscles as she's lifting and climbing uh, and her fingers on the keyboard, Things as everyday as uh, coffee and the warmth of her bed. These are enough, without quite putting together a story the way Lyra does, these are enough to hold her fast to her body. They're at least part of what's evoked in a story, that feeling of being alive. Uh, a further series of these come in, the taste of margarita, lemon trees, frost, and the pressure lessens on her, the stillness and being one with her body, um, being conscious of being carried back uh, by the dust, which itself is conscious of her plight, um, leaves her back and awake with a silent sob. So a very dramatic moment here, although it transpires rapidly and isn't fully explained, um, gives us a sense, at least, of what Pullman is after in his story. We had a sense of the difficulty, the, the depths of despair and melancholy and depression that he might have been going through as he places his characters at the deepest and darkest point of the story and sees them safely through. And here we see this as an image of a kind of ecstasy, as he puts it, of being one with his body of being part of the earth, of delighting in matter. And so when she puts the spyglass back to her eye, Mary sees that indeed the drift has become a flood. The dust, as she senses, feels a kind of regret that is abroad in the air. It knows what's happening to it and is sorrowful. And as she, uh, begins to feel a, a deep concern for uh, not only herself and this subject of her study, but for every conscious creature in every world. She feels a corresponding longing for the earth and climbs back down the tree. And as in many of these Mary Malone chapters, the close 
this one is a scene dealing with Father Gomez and seen from his perspective. He's come through the window into this world of the Mulefa, and he sees, as Mary had, that there's a kind of savanna all around, but he can see further than she did. By happenstance, the air this time is free of haze. He can see the glimmer of the sea and on it white shapes that might have been sails. He walks in the calm of the evening on the smooth surface of one of those roads, enjoying the fresh air after the fumes of the tempter's world that is our own, and admires the sunset on the shallow bay when he comes to it, where he sees birds like rowboats with wings raised. As she did, he admires their beauty and speed, their grace on the water, and then sees how they lumber up towards him, hissing with malice, their beaks and teeth clacking. And this gives him plenty of time to load his gun, aim and fire. The nearest bird explodes, uh, blunders about in a bloody circle before finally falling still. The other birds all stop and watch, and he watches them, observing their intelligence as they are linking cause and effect, looking from him to the bird, to the rifle, and to his face. When he makes a move, they react, and he can tell that they've understood. Understood what? Well, these living boats, he thinks, know what death is. And if they can make the connection between that and himself, as he puts it, they have a basis of a fruitful understanding. Once he can teach them to fear him, they will do as he says. So much as Mrs. Coulter was able to bend the specters to her will, using what strange intelligence they seem to have, or at least their appetite. In this case, Father Gomez is able to foresee a way of using these dangerous creatures for his own purposes. And as fortunate in a way as it is for him to see the sea and the birds first, uh, it's a kind of reflection of the way that Mary herself first encountered the Mulefa instead. Um, but after all, she's been watched over by angels on her way through Chitagatsi, just as Father Gomez has been protected by whatever spirits uh, he is in tune with. So we're rapidly approaching the end of this long journey. Uh, thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next time.